So good evening. You're all still here, it's so impressive. <laughs> I know for many of you it's uh, like it can be on retreat, a roller coaster. Some beautiful moments, some quiet moments, some deep sorrowful moments, some joy, some sadness. Sort of like life. So, and it takes a lot of courage to be here and to show up, to be with ourselves without distraction. You may have noticed there's not much distraction here. Maybe you've read the toilet wrapper paper 25 times, <laughs> or you're standing at the notice board half an hour looking for something. <laughs> I'm sure somebody wrote me a note about something. Maybe I should just quadruple check the schedule this morning just to see if the sitting has moved or lunch has changed. The mind is ceaseless in its capacity to find distraction. Isn't it amazing what we'll read and reread <laughs> and reread? It, the signs suddenly become really interesting. So you recycle where? You recycle the toilet rope in the thing downstairs, exactly. I should go check that out, just in case I missed that. And in some retreat centers, they have like the, the jam jars and stuff on the table, the peanut butter and stuff, and so you get to read the contents, you know, the food. <laughs> wow, it has so much fat in it, I didn't know. This is another magazine clipping. This is from um, Outside Magazine, where I get a lot of my uh, Dharma clippings from. Uh, and there's a picture of a woman in, up in the Teton National Park, up in uh, wherever that is, Idaho, I think. Wyoming, Wyoming thank you. <laughs> and uh, she's drinking a glass of uh, grapefruit juice. And the caption is from Tropicana. And it says, actual photo of woman in Nirvana. No wonder it's America's favorite grapefruit juice drink. <laughs> so if you're wanting the quick path to enlightenment, <laughs> tomorrow, when you're at Safeway, you can pick up Tropicana. And you'll be right there. Of course, any moment, if we're really present, can be a moment of Nirvana. And I'll get to that later. It's another story. So um, I want to talk a little today, following on from Diana's talk about the joys and the fruits of practice. You've been somewhat delving in the, in the heart of the challenges and the hindrances and the struggles of practice, and sometimes some moments or some periods or some meditations where you tasted some of the uh, capacity and potential of your own heart and mind awakening and the, the possibility of this, where this practice leads. So um, it feels important to name some of those um, possibilities that are realizable here and now in this life by all of us, millions of people. I just read this 350 million practicing Buddhists around. Um, you know, millions of people have walked this path for centuries and realized the fruits of freedom, of awakening, of 
reducing suffering. There's a quote from um, saying from Padmasambhava, one of, the, one of the founders of Tibetan Buddhism, who said, if you want to understand your past, look to your present experience. And if you want to know the future, look to your present conditions, sorry, present actions. So when we come to retreat, partly what we're experiencing is the fruit and the consequence of our past actions, our past habits, our past beliefs, our past views. They, they follow us like a shadow. So whatever habits of mind and heart that you've been cultivating over the last 25, 30 years, we don't just leave them at the door with our shoes. No, they follow us in. Habits of thinking, of self-judgment, of fear, of anxiety, of planning. Some of you have been talking about noticing those. So the good news about that teaching is that transformation is possible just because we reap the consequences of our actions in the present moment, of past actions in the present. We can also transform the present and therefore transform uh, the future in a way by shifting how we learn how to relate to this moment, how we wake up. The Buddha once said, if I didn't think this practice was possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. If I didn't think it was possible for you to awaken, to see, to be free of suffering, I wouldn't ask you to do it. So as we've said, the point of our practice um, is not to get to some rosy place, some comfortable state, but to learn how to be present, learn how to wake up to this moment, to meet what's happening with kindness, with awareness. And by doing that, we come closer to the truth, the truth of who we are, the truth of what is. And as Krishnamurti said, it's the truth that sets us free, not our efforts to get there. It's the truth that's liberating. So over time, with, our, with our, the growth of our attention, our awareness, we gradually come more into alignment with the truth of the way things are. And we also um, work with the habits of mind that keep seeming to plague us, bog us down, even when we know better. Sometimes it's even harder when we have a little awareness and we keep seeing, in the beginning, we keep seeing the places that we, uh, like blind alleys, that we get tripped up. I'm just like, oh no, not that again. I thought I worked through that. Oh, there it is again. Oh, I thought I was free from that. So there's an autobiography in five short chapters by Portia Nelson, which um, some of you might relate to this um, sort of metaphor for life and practice. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. <laughs> I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it still isn't my fault, and it still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. 
It's a habit. My eyes are open, but I know where I am. It is my fault, and I get out immediately. Is this sounding familiar? Chapter 4, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down a different street. And the chapter 6, we added for the activists in the room as we go down the same street and we fix the hole. (laughs) That's the compassionate heart that arises out of the clear seeing. So I think that chapter 3 is particularly interesting. We walk down the same street, we see the hole, we still fall in. It's a habit. So partly what we're working with is, is the habitual tendencies of mind that we know, but the strength of them, the power of those egoic forces keep pulling us back, which is why we practice. If we could just say, wake up, be present, and you could, then we'd be out of a job. (laughs) You would, but clearly there's a reason why we keep being pulled back into, into unclarity. The Buddha said, I have found this deep and superb truth, this teaching, which is difficult to perceive and awaken to, which is subtle and beyond the reach of thought, yet it's full of peace and obvious to the wise. So I'll be talking a little about how we um, get tastes of that in our experience. You know, when I started practicing in London, in the East End of London, um, in 1984, um, I was... uh, punk rocker, and I was pretty angry. I was at college and uh, thought the world owed me lots and uh, was very a lot of despair and anger about poverty and the racism and the oppression and the violence and just the, just the mess that humans get ourselves into, but also really caught up in my own suffering and self-hatred and uh, very critical and judgmental towards myself and others and... Um, and I came across these teachings by, you know, by happenstance, and um, I was actually squatting a Buddhist cooperative house uh, that I didn't know at the time. Squatting is when you enter a house um, somewhat illegally and take it over and find out it was owned by Buddhists. <laughs> <laughs> so we came to peace, and anyhow, so um, I started practicing, and um, ended up uh, connecting with this tradition after about seven years in England and um, started doing retreats and I loved the retreats, I loved the silence and the stillness and uh, the teachings and and how simple it was, how direct it was, how immediate Um, and started doing longer retreats, started doing some three-month retreats in the East Coast IMS, a sister center to here. And I remember the first three-month course I did, and some of you are thinking, three months, please, Louise, three days is enough. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if you stick with it, you'll actually find that it becomes very delicious and very um, inviting. And um, I remember looking back at that time, that first three-month retreat, and thinking that was actually the happiest three months of my life. There was such a lot of um, uh, peace that had come, and clarity, and stillness, and, and... I felt really unified and whole, and and also retreat life is very simple. You know, it's just a very simple focus. Um, so I kind of I kind of got hooked, and I got really uh, into this this practice and this way of life. Um, but I also began to really taste some of the fruits of, of what 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 happens when we train our mind. You know, most of us have very untrained minds. 
we may have trained them in a very specific thing. You know, some of us have done a lot of training through, through our work or education. So we've trained how to think in a very specific way. So we become experts in something. Um, but mostly, the rest of our mind is not really that well disciplined, as you've probably noticed. You know, we ask our mind to pay attention to the breath, and what happens? It's all over the place. It will think of 50 million things except the breath. Or we'll say, feel your feelings. No way, Jose, I'm not going to feel my feelings. Um, so to, to, be, to be living with a mind that's unruly and untrained is, is hard work. It's challenging. It's tiring. It it's, um, can be a real drag. And the, the contrast of, and maybe even you, you tasted this in these last few days, when the mind is a little more trained, more focused, more centered, more grounded, less distracted, um, more balanced, more calm, more equanimous, it's actually much more pleasurable. It's more peaceful. It's more calming to the nervous system. Just to have that clarity, uh, the concentration and the joy that comes from a mind and, and heart that's harmonized. So one of the obvious fruits of this practice that we begin to see is just the simple joy of being present and how much we see and how much we realize we miss when we're not present. And I know a lot of you have talked about um, just, the, just contacting your breath and like really feeling your breath as if you've never felt the breath before. Somebody talked today about walking and just doing walking meditation out on the tarmac and barefoot and just feeling that, in, that very intimate, deep connection of the moment, the foot, the ground. So these very simple moments where we hear birdsong and it's just birdsong. There's no thinking, there's no wondering, there's no comparing, it's just sound, just, you know, or we see you know, the birds flying around and we see the beauty and grace one of the things that's so lovely about practicing here when we become more present is we have all this access to this beautiful nature and the light and the birds and the grasses and the, the, you know, all the critters that, that wander through this beautiful land. And we see how, you know, which normally we, we could have hiked through here many times and you know, maybe noticed 10% of it. But as we slow down and get more present, we really see like a child, that childlike curiosity and wonder, like we look at a, the trunks of some of the oaks with the moss and the lichen and, and the, the aged, wrinkled bark, and it's, it's a mystery. It, it opens the heart to wonder, to joy, to amazement. I was watching somebody looking at this uh, gopher, and maybe some of you checked out the gopher who hangs out in the lawn over there. You know, just pops up in his little whiskers are twitching his nose and he kind of looks around and goes back down, shovels a bit more dirt and looks around, you know. When we're present, it's, it's a very wonderful moment. Just that, that, that beauty of life, the fragility, the tenderness, the, and we feel connected. We stop worrying about the lawn. Oh, we haven't got the perfect grassy lawn, <laughs> which we might do if it was our own yard. <laughs> and we just see, oh, how amazing. That, you know, this being lives under the, under the soil and, and aerates the soil and makes everything possible to grow. This is a story somebody wrote. Um, it was actually a story I put in my book about meditation and nature. Kate, a meditation student, told me of an experience she had after returning home from an intensive mindfulness retreat. 
she was drawn to go alone to the pond where she often tramps with her dogs and kids. She scrambled up the rocks and sat amidst the trees, gazing in solitude at the pond. She recounts, before I knew it, I was drawn to the stillness. It was so much easier to feel the tranquility of being on my own. The trees softly blowing in the wind began to wave in unison with my breath. Suddenly there was no outside or inside. Nothing anywhere felt separate. We, the universe and I, were breathing together, alive and pulsating. The trees danced and sang and kept playing with me. The experience probably only lasted a few minutes, though it lives in me always. So I don't think she would have had that that subtlety of perception had she not just come back from, from retreat and been that open and that aware, that present, to feel that sense of connection or union. And so um, that's one of the things personally that I really love about having cultivated presence and mindfulness and awareness is in spending a lot of time in nature out, out in nature and, and, and leading retreats out in nature is to feel that, that beauty and that wonder and that awe I was leading a retreat up in Alaska. I do this wonderful kayak retreat every year, most years, up in southeast Alaska, and everyone was doing walking meditation on this sort of crunchy, pebbly beach. So everyone's crunch, 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 stepping, stepping, stepping. And all of a sudden, this humpback whale surfaces about, only about 100 feet from the beach, very close, for, you know, given that the whale's probably about 60 foot long. Um, and just this big as they do, they blow, it's a very deep, long blow. And everybody stopped at the same time and looked. Was this, and I was at the back, so I was watching everybody. It was such a beautiful moment, that, that moment of presence and connection and you know, awe. And of course, when we're that open, the heart is just blooms with love, with connection. You know? We can't not feel the love when we're that present. So that's why we say, you know, make use of the, the nature here. It's one of the greatest teachers here. And certainly when I do these retreats, it is the teacher. I just happen to be sort of guiding, you know, holding space really for nature to do its work. So, um, I want to talk a lot about peace this evening. Um, you know, often we talk about wanting to be happy or wanting to you know, get somewhere. Um, and we often think of happiness or joy as what we want, as some kind of peak experience. Um, and we often remember those peak experiences. But I think uh, on a deeper level, what we most long for, or one of the things that we most long for, is peace, the peace that comes from, from those moments of happiness, the peace that comes when we're no longer wanting anything, when we're no longer resisting anything. So I want to talk about peace and what can happen through our practice that al- allows access to peace more available. So one of the things that we work with a lot in meditation, as you've noticed, is our thoughts, because thoughts are so ever-present and so clearly can be uh, a pretty major obstacle to being simply at peace with with what's happening. 
So one of the things that we learn as we, as we practice mindfulness is we learn to have a little more space, spaciousness around our thoughts, around our thinking. So we don't buy into the thoughts so much. As Diana said yesterday, uh, we start to um, live with that bumper sticker. You know, don't believe everything you think. We have, a, you know, and before, you know, certainly before I started practicing meditation, me and my thoughts were the same thing, and I believed every one of them, and every one of them was true, and they were better than yours. <laughs> so there. <laughs> and then as we meditate, we start to get some space and go, huh, look at these thoughts. They're kind of endless, and they're a little wacky. You know, they're kind of just nattering and chattering and have all kinds of points of view and judgments about things I have no idea about. You know, just, just think about all the, the, the thoughts and assumptions you've had about people here, right? There's 90 people, 90, about 100 of us here on retreat. You haven't talked to anybody, barely, except at the beginning. But how many views and assumptions and ideas have you had about each other? Put people in boxes. Oh, that person looks like a lawyer. Oh, yeah. I know that kind of person. You know, I know just the way they dress. I just, you know, I can tell where they live and, you know. Oh, that person looks like a gardener. Yeah. Yeah, I can tell they're really earthy, you know, and grounded, and I really like the way they walk, and, you know, barefoot, you know, it's really... You know. And we create this whole story, <laughs> which I'll talk about, story-making. So we get a little space around that. We start to say, oh, look what I'm doing. Oh, there's a judgment there, or there's an assumption, or there's a story, an elaboration. So hopefully what you've learned uh, from this retreat is that um, you don't have to stop your thoughts, which is a good job because you can't. <laughs> you know, that study that I think I quoted the other day the, from Stanford that somehow they measured that we think maybe 60 to 90,000 thoughts a day. Must have been a boring job counting those, but anyhow, <laughs> um, that's a lot of thoughts. That's about one a second, if my maths is correct. We don't have to stop the thoughts, but we can learn how to come into a wise relationship with them. To see that they're not the ultimate truth. I was teaching a retreat one year here, and a friend of mine um, who is particularly um, um, beleaguered by a very strong critic, and this critic was giving a hard time, he wasn't very mindful, his meditation wasn't up to scratch, and he'd never get anywhere, just the usual stories that we give ourselves, tell ourselves on retreat. He was walking down the hill, and his, you know, he's late for lunch, and his critics beating him up for being late for lunch, and yada, yada, yada. And he suddenly had this moment that we do, these moments of insight, and he, just, and he realized, oh, this is just thoughts. It's just a bunch of thoughts. It's not real. It's not necessarily true. It's just a thought in my mind. I don't have to believe it. And that, that's one of the miracles of mindfulness, is, is all of a sudden, out of the blue, it creates a little space where we go, huh, and before it was like this, we were stuck together, and suddenly it's like, oh, we have a little vantage point where we see, oh, I don't have to buy into this as much as I thought. Maybe I don't have to buy into it at all. That's a really deep moment of freedom when we start to get space like that. Buddha Dasa, a well-known Thai meditation master, uh, was once asked to, to sum up what he thought about Westerners who were coming to study with him. And in three words, he said, yeah, three words, lost in thought. 
lost in thought. We're lost in thought. You probably, you know, one of the insights, the first insights we have in this practice is how much we think. You know, first we might think, oh, I don't like this meditation because I think all the time. I don't like this walking practice. It makes me think a lot. And then we realize, oh, actually I'm doing this all the time. That's all I do is I think, I think. This is from Byron Katie, a contemporary teacher. She says, mind gives birth to infinite worlds of this and that, loss and sorrow, good and evil. It's complete from the beginning, yet it's inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. Mind is complete from the beginning, but inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. Believing what you think, you're carried off into the endless dramas of the self. And then she goes on to say, I live in completeness. All of us do, though we may not realize it. I don't know anything. I don't have to figure anything out. I gave up 43 years of thinking that went nowhere. Now I exist as a don't-know mind. This leaves nothing but peace and joy in my life. And I, having known her for a long time, she lived like that. She lives where she, as far as I can tell, completely does not buy into a single thought that arises. And she has a lot of peace and joy and laughter and space and freedom. So um, one of the, the teachings um, about the mind that I like from the Buddha is the teachings about papancha. Papancha is a, another Pali word, which means the, the proliferation of mind, the proliferation of thought. And from one perspective, life is very simple, and certainly here life is very simple. You sleep, you wake up, you sit, you eat, you walk, you sit, you eat, you rest, you eat, you sit, you walk, and you sleep. There's not a lot going on. Follow your breath, follow your footsteps. And yet look at the world that we create around that, the proliferation of thought, how we complicate it. You know, just a simple act of walking. Very simple, follow your footsteps, pay attention. But a whole world gets revealed about who I am and how, who I am in relationship to everybody else. And am I a good walker or not good walker? Do I walk spiritually? Um, am I the slowest walker? James Barrow is one of the teachers here. When, when he's catching himself doing the whole comparing thing with walking, he has a note that he says to himself when he's walking really slow, looking good, looking good, <laughs> looking good. <laughs> You know, or we eat. You know, eating is simply, you know, getting dead plants and animals, well, in here, dead plants, you know, putting them in our mouth, masticating them with our jaw and swallowing, and then at some point getting rid of them throughout the other side. But we have this whole drama that goes on around food, eating, and how much do I eat, and did they see how much I took, and God, did they see that I went for seconds again? <laughs> I was on a retreat with a friend of mine who is like the world's slowest eater. And of course he has this very small bowl and only takes like this teeny portion. And I've got this huge <laughs> big plate. <laughs> and we would sit in the same room and my, my meal would be finished like in a quarter of the time that he'd you know, barely chewed a broccoli, you know. <laughs> so I had this whole, I was, we sat a three month retreat together, this whole drama going on about, 
you know, that his practice was so much better than mine because he was a slow eater and I was just such a pig and I just stuffed my food in and I'm so unconscious and I never get anywhere. And he was just eating slowly and I was eating at the speed I was. But the mind had created this whole story about it. You know, food competition, slowness, there's a lot of slowness competition goes on here. I remember a time when I was teaching in Bodh Gaya in India, and um, this uh, young man was telling me the story of what happened the day before. He'd come on retreat and uh, was having a really good time, was really concentrated, was having a lot of blissful experiences in the morning, and was just so you know, passionate about the practice. And of course, you know, when the practice is going well, you start thinking, wow, you know, maybe I could do this, you know, like, you know, longer retreat, you know, and he was, so he had this whole story, I'm going to go to Burma and get ordained, you know, and do for three years, sit in a cave, and you know, the bliss will just be, you know, all-encompassing, and of course, when you get that excited, then, of course, you lose your concentration, you get very agitated, and the sitting starts becoming more uncomfortable, so the rest of the day, his sitting, you know, from, from his perspective, went downhill, it was very, very agitated, and a lot of restlessness, and by the evening, he was ready to leave the retreat, he was so fed up. <laughs> He goes from, you know, ordaining to leaving the next day. That's the mind making a story about of, out of a simple experience of joy and concentration and then restlessness and agitation. This is the, the mind of Papancha that spins, that proliferates. That with, with practice, with awareness, we come to see. We see the stories that we make. I, I was sitting in a retreat, uh, myself retreat, doing a solo retreat, at uh, a friend's house in Whitaker, and I'd just gotten over here from, from England, and I, I think I had just applied for my green card, or just got my green card, or something like that. And so I was doing a retreat in this house, and um, you know, for, I was doing a mindfulness retreat, so I had you know, s- some amount of awareness. And all of a sudden, I'm looking out one of the windows, and this, dry, this car pulls up, leans out the window, and takes a picture of me in the window. I'm like, huh, that's weird. And his, his house is on a circle, it's, on a, it's, on, it's like this loop, so the car drives around. I walk around to the other side of the house to see if he's coming around. True enough, the car comes around, stops, leans out the window, takes a picture of me in the window, and drives off. And I'm thinking, wow, that's kind of weird. Why don't you take a picture of me in this house? I don't live here, and, but I just, just got my green card, and maybe it's the FBI, they're checking up on me. And <laughs> so the next few days, this whole drama, what are these people doing taking pictures? And I got really paranoid, and... That's Papancha, the mind that proliferates. Who knows why I was taking I never got to find out why I was taking a picture. <laughs> so what you know, the common denominator of most of these stories is what? Me. <laughs> or you. Us. You know, story, story, story about me, about my life, my drama, my work, my money, my, my identity, who I am, where I'm going. Endless self-improvement, endless fixing ourselves, working on a personality. It's a lot of work. Based on, usually based on a sense that we're not good enough, that we're not complete enough, that we're not okay just as we are. And once we buy into that thought, that belief, then everything else unfolds from there. Lily Tomlin, a comedian, once said, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. (laughs) So over time, 
what I've noticed with, with practice, with, and, and I, I'm sure you have to some degree already, if not earlier, we start to get weary of our thoughts. Anybody weary of their thinking mind? <laughs> you know, maybe you used to be in love with it and fascinating with it. And it, 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 you know, I'm not saying you know, thought is an amazing thing. The mind is an amazing thing. Humans, as far as we know, are the only species that really plans and, and, and accounts for the future. Um, in a very purposeful way. And, you know, we create and imagine and build all these amazing things, and you know, the mind is an amazing thing. But it's sort of gotten out of control in our own experience. And so um, uh, the weariness is actually a good sign. When you start getting weary of your mind and your thoughts, it means you've started to somewhat disengage a little. Because we need to sort of lose some of the fascination. We're all fascinated and somewhat addicted to the thoughts. And when we lose that fascination, then we start to, um, we feed the thoughts less. When we feed the thoughts less, there's a little more space, there's a little more room, and we start to go, oh, I actually prefer my mind, my experience when I'm quieter, when I'm not doing all these dramas and selfing and story making. And I go backpacking a lot, and um, it's always fun for me to notice um, yeah, I'm hiking in a trail, and uh, it's a beautiful place. And I find myself, I catch myself thinking, as, as we do, about, you know, the trail, or, you know, if I did the trail, I would have, you know, gone this direction, you know, and, or I'm redesigning my backpack, you know, the, the, the perfect hiking backpack, or the perfect drinking bottle that has the right tubes coming out different places, you know, and, and, I, and I stop myself and go, what am I doing this for? Like, why am I redesigning my hiking boots when I, here I am in Yosemite and I've hiked, you know, five miles up the ridge to get to this view, and here I am thinking about my tent? <laughs> this is from Rumi. He's talking about thought. Out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas and language, and even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. So at some point we see the, both the place and also the limitation of our thoughts. And Diane, Diane alluded to um, one particular piece of uh, story-making that, that causes a lot of suffering, the critic, the self-judging, the self-beating up, the high standards, the impossible tasks and standards we, we give ourselves. And again, it, it's, it's, very, it's very powerful and illuminating when we get a little space from the critic. We see, oh, it's just like this, my friend did, oh, it's a bunch of thoughts. It's not actually true. The critic is actually rarely that accurate. We believe it's to be true, but actually, objectively, if we ask you know, 10 people who knew us, is this really true about me? Am I really a failure? Am I really a loser? Am I really inadequate and never going to get my life together? Is that really true? They probably wouldn't say so. This is a cartoon from uh, Rhymes with Orange, a very delightful cartoon strip. It's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. 
some of, some of the things our mind gets up to in its machinations. Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. I've been doing that on the retreat. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all your flaws. <laughs> Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. <laughs> this caption is a woman getting a compliment in the compliments, you look great. And she's thinking, don't patronize me. <laughs> and lastly, um, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. So for me, I, you know, as I mentioned, I, I, I started my practice with a very vicious critic, self-critic. And over the years, with mindfulness and with seeing it and seeing the pain of it and slowly letting it go, um, it doesn't, it doesn't bite anymore. It still comes up every now and then. But um, the freedom that comes from not believing that story is very liberating. So other ways that, that we um, taste peace and freedom on this path. One of the primary things that mindfulness does is it um, allows us to see our reactivity allows us to see the ways that we create and cause our own suffering. The, the goal of the Buddhist path um, is called Nirvana, Nibbana, um, which is really one way of looking at it. It's the ending of suffering. It's the ending of greed, of hatred, of confusion. And that can seem like an impossibly long way away when we look at our own mind and see that the tendencies of greed and grasping and resistance. Buddhadasa, the teacher I mentioned earlier, um, had this wonderful teaching where he said um, that we all have experienced moments of nibbana. That if we take, if we take, if we understand the teachings as a moment-to-moment experience, which they are, then we can see in some moments we have moments free from greed free from hatred, free from struggling with the moment, free from confusion about who we are. And so those moments of Nibbana are possible. We can taste that in any moment when we let go, when we stop resisting, when we stop wanting some other reality or experience than what's here. That saying from Achan Chah, if we let go a little, we have a little peace. If we let go a lot, we have a lot of peace. If we let go completely, we have complete peace. The choice is up to us. So with awareness, with mindfulness, we can see the suffering that comes from resistance, from aversion, from not wanting what's happening to be here. And you've all felt this. You've all seen moments of this, where something comes up in your meditation, with your thoughts, or your body pain, or somebody breathing loudly, or coughing, or, you know, and you, there's that initial contraction, that, that very habitual, something's unpleasant, we don't like it, we hate it, we resist it. And then we believe the thought, I have to get rid of this to be happy. I can't be happy if this person breathes. <laughs> this person has to stop breathing. 
I've thought that many a time on retreat. <laughs> Causes a bit of a problem, logistically. <laughs> so I'll tell this story. It's a story I tell a lot, but it it's, speaks to the point. So I'm on a retreat in India, and um, I'm sitting in Bodh Gaya. It's this 20-day retreat, and uh, it's in this big, beautiful Thai monastery, but it's also a concrete and nothing but concrete and some mats on the floor and um, there's the, the village is sort of a little ways away but it sort of this year grew spread because a lot of pilgrims and a lot of temporary stores open up so the store opened up across the road from the retreat center the monastery um, it was a travel agency and uh, they stuck a loudspeaker on top of their, their little it's basically a concrete shack and they were advertising bus tickets all around India for the pilgrims because thousands of pilgrims come and so they sell their wares. And so they had this little tape cassette loop that went uh, and it went something like this. It went, hello, 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 hello. <laughs> Bodhgaya, no, Bodhgaya, that's where I was. Um, Delhi, Calcutta, Darjeeling, Bombay, Madras, you know, all different places in India. And some words in Hindi, uh, which I didn't understand, fortunately. And then the tape would stop and then rewind. Very sophisticated sound system. And then it would go again. Hello, 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 hello. Da -da 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 -da. Bombay, Calcutta, Delhi, Darjeeling. Uh, some words in Hindi. Uh, and rewind. Start again. Uh, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Bombay, Calcutta, Delhi. And this is like, you know, day two of this 20-day retreat. Like, no! <laughs> we had one of those bowls I would have put over my head, you know. Aversion, aversion, aversion. Hatred, hatred, hatred. Homicidal feelings, homicidal feelings. We weren't allowed to leave the monastery grounds. You, you, you were banned from leaving, so um, we couldn't go and, you know, do some nonviolent direct action, and <laughs> so we had to sit with it. Hello, 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 hello. And you would pray for the Indian electricity to go out, which it would frequently. Um, you know, pray to the gods. Thank you. you know. And you know, it's just bouncing off the walls, concrete. Hello, hello, hello. And so it went on day after day after day, and we're sitting, like, don't these people know this is a meditation, this is a holy place, and how can they be making so much noise? You know, India's a wonderful teacher like that, because you, you don't have any control over the, uh, the conditions, so the mind at some point has to surrender or it goes mad. So finally, after some days, it's like, okay, it's just sound, it's just sound, it's just sound, it's sound, hearing, hearing, hearing. It's unpleasant, it's unpleasant, it's unpleasant. And at some point, mostly it stopped becoming... Uh, a source of suffering, because the mind had just accepted this is this is how it is, this is equanimity. This is how it is. Things are as they are. This is a sound. It's unpleasant. I don't like it. But the suffering isn't in the sound. It's in my contraction around it. When I stop contracting around it, it was just sound, just like the person breathing next to us. Sometimes it's incredibly suffering, and other times it's oh, somebody's breathing. What do you know? Somebody's coughing. And so what was liberating for me about that was I realized. I didn't have to get rid of the source of discomfort to be happy. I realized happiness wasn't in that sound coming or going. It was in my own mind 
because that sound continued to go for the next 15 days, and it didn't cause as much suffering because the mind wasn't reacting. So if we take that metaphorically to all the things in our life, in our lives that we don't like, that we think we have to get rid of, you know, the IRS and our partner's messiness and the neighbor's dog and, you know, our boss and, you know, our, you know, our debt and whatever it is. No. Suffering isn't inherent in the object but in our relationship to them. In the same way with the wanting mind, the grasping mind, how many fantasies of desire and lust and wanting and craving and needing something to be happy in these last two days, three days we've been together. You know, how many? I mean, if we counted them all up collectively, we'd have like millions. You know, oh, I wish there was better coffee in the morning. Oh, I wish there was coffee in the morning. Oh, <laughs> you, know, you know, I wish they served burgers for dinner. You know, like, where's the meat? You know, or, you know where's the duvet or, you know, you name it, you know, the mind will think of it if it's not here. I'll be happy if, you know, Dinah talked about that. Um, and again, we think the happiness is in the thing. If we get the thing, we'll be happy. No, the very want to grasping the attachment itself is, we see through mindfulness, that is the suffering itself. Whether we have the thing or not is irrelevant. Sometimes we get it and it's pizza. You know, it's pizza. It's okay, but it's pizza. It's tremendously liberating when we see that no matter how beautiful an object is, if, we, if, there's, a, if there's grasping and attachment around it, it's suffering. And usually the more beautiful and the more, the more we esteem the thing, the more likelihood that we grasp, we hold on. That's the suffering. We don't have to get rid of the thing can be a beautiful person, we have to get rid of them, we have to get rid of the attachment. See the attachment, see the pain of, of attachment. That's what allows it to let go. It's just like the uh, when we're sitting at home on a Sunday morning and you know we're just drinking tea and having money our own business, and then we feel a little restless, so we say, oh, I'll check out the pile of catalogs that came this week. See if there's anything I can want. Because <laughs> I haven't wanted anything at least since God, breakfast. So we start looking through, you know, the REI catalog or, you know, the Good Earth catalog, all the sort of, you know, wholesome granola catalogs that makes you feel good about buying because it's sort of healthy and green, you know. And then we get bored with those, so we get the Macy's catalog out. And so we get to see, oh, when grasping is present, peace is not, there's no room for peace. They don't go together. You know, our culture feeds us with, you know, want these things, get these things, and be happy. But the very mind state that's wanting those is the very source of suffering. So through mindfulness, we see, oh, this wanting, this grasping, this attachment is the source of suffering. Or we look at the way we relate to our emotions. There was a, I just taught a retreat up in, up in Bellingham, in Washington, and there was this man talking about his fear, and what became clear was he wasn't afraid of the object, the thing that was going to happen. He was just afraid of his own fear. We get afraid of our own emotions, including fear. And so mindfulness gives us a capacity to hold our emotional life. You know, lots of people have been talking about sadness today and grief and loneliness. 
And we can get into that mind state, oh, I've got to get rid of this to be happy. And then we see, oh, actually, I can just feel this. Mindfulness can hold everything. Mindfulness has a space to hold everything. And when I don't resist it and don't struggle with it, it's actually not suffering. There's a certain, there can be a sweetness or a comfort or an ease in grief, in sadness. There can be a sweetness in longing when we're not struggling with it. It's not easy, it's not pleasant, we might not want it, but when we let go of fighting it, we let go of the suffering. And I did a long retreat, again, back in IMS, a three-month retreat, very painful retreat, uncovered very uh, painful uh, stuff that I hadn't really looked at in my life. And um, but I think because of the fact I've been practicing for a while, I was just able to surrender into it. And instead of fighting it, there was just a lot of uh, tenderness and kindness. And so it wasn't actually suffering. It was painful, but it wasn't suffering because I wasn't trying to get rid of it. And the same way with working with physical pain. I was teaching a mindfulness-based stress reduction course in Kaiser in one of the hospitals up in Santa Rosa. And um, this was about it was an eight-week class, and we teach basic mindfulness skills to, to allow, help people work with their chronic pain and illness. And a woman who had been suffering a lot um, through the course came in, I think it was like week five, where people start to really get a little taste of mindfulness and how it can apply to pain. And she came in really excited and not so gripped by the physical pain. And I said, oh, what's going on? What, what, what's, what's changed? You found a new pain remedy or what, what's, what's the deal? And of course she hadn't because we got the people who had given up on finding pain remedies. And um, she said, you know, I was sitting in meditation and I've had this chronic neck pain for 10 years. And I've, you know, of course, struggled with it and hated it. And, um, and so this moment appeared in, when I was sitting where instead of fighting it and resisting it, I just decided to have it, just to let myself feel it, instead of contracting and pushing it away. <laughs> and she noticed that when she stopped contracting and pushing it away, and she felt the very core of the pain, it actually wasn't that bad. But all the fear and the contraction and the tightness and the hating and the pushing it away, that had collaborated to make the experience feel unbearable. But when she just came into the moment and didn't bring the future in of, oh my God, how this is going to last forever, and just stay with the moment-to-moment sensations, it was bearable. And it was a very transformational moment for her. That's the power of mindfulness, when we just see the truth of what's happening rather than our resistance and stories. So the Buddha gave this wonderful teaching to Bahia, uh, a young um, mendicant at the time, who wanted to find out the essence of the Buddha's teaching. He didn't have time for a big, long discourse that the Buddha would like to give. He just said, just tell me the pith, just the pith of the pith. (laughs) He obviously lived last year somewhere in San Francisco and didn't have time for all the, you know, the whole thing. So just give me the essence. And so the Buddha said, okay, here it is. In the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the sensing, there is just the sensing. In the cognized, there is just the cognized. He said a few other things, but basically that was the essence of the teaching. This is the end of suffering. When we see the utter simplicity of our experience, 
without fabrication, without overlay, without story, without resistance, without liking or disliking or wanting or not wanting. In the seeing, there is just seeing. In the hearing, there is just hearing. Sensing, there's just the sensing. In the cognize, just the cognize. That is our experience. Everything else is extra. So another way of putting it, another way that we can taste this um, simplicity <coughs> is by realizing that the peace that we're, that we're so longing for is actually already here. When we cut through a lot of our mental machinations, when we give up the story that happiness is somewhere in the future, but actually is available right here, that is also a profound shifting in our practice. When we, when we unhook that belief that, you know, when I get this together and I get my money together and get my relationship and, and the kids and the house and job and, you know, my 401k and, you know, then I can relax and retire, you know, get the RV and go to Vegas and, you know, <laughs> and wherever it is you want to go. The Grand Canyon, sorry, wrong, same state, different place. I Actually, different state. <laughs> I'm from England, okay? So, you know. <laughs> it's a little canyon in Vegas. I don't know. So. Actually, they've got a Grand Canyon in Vegas. It's not as grand, but you know. I have no idea. I don't go to Vegas. <laughs> so this is a little piece from Gendon Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher. He says, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. I'll read that again, just in case you thought I misread it. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every moment. So we may know that when we get quiet enough, when we have those moments where things drop away and we're just feeling a breath, we're just listening to a sound. We're just tasting the broccoli. We're just taking a step. And we see it's all right here. It's very simple. It's nothing fancy. It's nothing esoteric. It's just being fully here with what is. Without our stories, without our dramas. The, I'd say the biggest shift, one of the biggest shifts that happens with our practice is that we shift from being identified and caught up with our stories and our emotions and our body and our feelings and our reactions to experiencing the awareness that's aware of all of that. 
after we actually see all of this experience, feelings, thoughts, drama, emotions, reactions. It's all appearing and disappearing like sounds do in awareness. You have those moments where there's just a clarity of awareness and we see a thought come and we see, oh, that's just a story. And we see you know, an emotion comes up and we're not so, so embroiled in it. There's some space, there's awareness. We, we rest in the awareness that's the nature of our mind, the nature of who we are. And we see the personality that we've created and spend so much time tending to and gardening, watering, developing, improving, fixing, is just a person, it's just a construct that we make up in our mind. That's not ultimately who we are. And we see that there's this quality of this capacity of mind to be aware, to be present, that doesn't leave you. Right now, try practicing not being aware. Okay? Practice not paying attention to anything right now. Okay? Don't pay attention to anything. Okay? Just try it. Don't try too hard. What do you notice? It's difficult. Difficult not to be aware. Anybody else? Anybody succeed not being aware? Awareness is always present to something, often to our thoughts, often to the past or the future, but it's always present to something. So the question is, two questions, what do we do with that awareness? And what is that awareness? One of the Buddhist greatest discoveries was to see that the personality self is not a refuge. It's not a reliable source of happiness. It's unreliable. It's always changing. It's always comparing itself. What's a more reliable refuge is this quality of awareness, of presence. And the good news is we don't have to go shopping for it. It's already the nature of your mind. The nature of the mind is awareness, is wakefulness. When we rest and abide in that wakefulness, there's much greater sense of peace, of ease, equanimity, non-reactivity. So we'll do a little, uh, another, another exercise. So I'm going to say a few words, and I'm just going to ask you to just repeat the words to yourself silently. So the sentence I'm going to say is, I am a meditator sitting here. And just say that to yourself. You can close your eyes. I am a meditator sitting here. And now repeat the sentence and just remove the here. 
I am a meditator sitting. Now remove the word sitting. I am a meditator. Now remove the word meditator. I am a. Close your eyes when you do this if you can. Stay with your inner experience. Remove the word a. I am. I am. Remove the word am. Just sit with the sense of I. Now take away the I. if you want or not. People can just say one or two words about your experience, your direct experience. Describe your experience in one or two words. Anybody? What are you noticing? Blankness and awareness of the blankness. Just, just, just say what, what, what state you're, that elicited. Yeah. Stillness. Stillness. The breath. Breath. Freedom. Freedom. Direct experience. Direct experience. Peace. Space. Peace. Peace. Emptiness. Emptiness. Hmm? Awareness. Physical sensations, oneness. oneness. So in this place, this quality of presence, when we don't look to the mind, when we don't look to the past, we stay with our present experience, is there a problem? Is there suffering? when we stay with our direct experience of the moment, is there a problem? So lastly, um, I could go on and on with this talk because there's a lot to say about the fruits and the joys of practice. Um, But from that place of openness, spaciousness that some of you refer to, when we lose that, temporarily even, when we become less embroiled with our stories and our self and me and my personality and my needs and my wants and my projects and my dreams, and we just get quiet, what happens in that space is um, often the sense of self that was just so rigid and defended starts to soften. Through practice, our heart starts to open naturally because we're less wrapped up in ourselves. We start to actually be available 
to see and experience and be touched by what's around us, especially other people. You may notice as you go home that you have, and you, you will actually notice this when you go home, a much greater sensitivity, a greater receptivity. You might be able to listen and see people in a way that you've never seen them before because there's more openness, there's more spaciousness, there's more mindfulness, there's more clarity. And when that happens, our heart naturally opens. We, we become more touched, just like you have been with a lot of the nature here. You, know, you see the baby fawns and the heart just wants to almost explode with just tenderness and, and warmth. Or the baby swallows, or the, you know, all the, the things here. The same when, we, when we, we meet the suffering or the tenderness of people we love and know. We start to feel the, the qualities of metta that we've been practicing. You know, there's a whole realm of practice where we open our heart through those practices, but we also they happen naturally. We start to feel more compassion, more touched, more tender, more um, a greater sense of a greater capacity to love, because we have a greater capacity to listen and to receive and to see more clearly who's before us. And there's also a natural response to want to be caring, to want to help, to want to be kind, to want to support. There's a beautiful expression, there's a, this quality of the bodhisattva, one who dedicates their lives to the relief of suffering of others. It's one of the beautiful expressions out of um, these teachings, where, we, where the, the, the self-centeredness has dropped to such an extent that there's just such a natural giving and generosity of heart to want to care for others. Because we're not so concerned, we've sort of you know, resolved a lot of the stuff in ourselves, so there's more energy and more capacity to really be of service. And at some point, helping and serving uh, is, is, seems to be the only thing that makes sense, is to, is to share the abundance of this um, joyful heart and practice. So this was sort of a, um, a taste of some of the possibilities of the practice, some of the potentials, some of the things you've already tasted and can grow into as practice deepens. And of course, this is a practice. We call it practice because it takes practice. And it doesn't just happen overnight. Um, and it's through, our, through efforts like you've done in this retreat that allow these qualities and insights to emerge. So let's sit for a, a minute or so. So sitting without changing or manipulating anything, simply resting in awareness.
allowing yourself to be as you are. I'll read a poem from a student who uh, went through tremendous suffering as a child and through the practice really came to um, learn how to develop this heart of metta. She says, drink until you are swollen with the nectar of self-nurturing, beauty and love. Fill yourself with amazement at the marvel and the wonder of who you are. Drink the juice of metta, of love, for you, for your own beauty. Drink until you are so full it spills from you, freely and gracefully. Drink until you are the nectar, the juice, until you are embodied heart and soul, and then you will know you are love itself. So, thanks for your attention. We'll have a walking period um, and we'll come back for a sitting at 8.45. Where is it? 8.45. Maybe let's do it 8.50. So if we can, the bell ring can ring the bell five minutes later than normal. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.